Hi, this is a production of Community Covenant Church in Eagle River, Alaska, where our mission is to bring Christ's hope, healing, and wholeness to our community and to our world. Our service times are 9 and 11 each Sunday morning. Find out more at www.communitycovenant.net. First Thessalonians chapter 1, verses 1 through 10. Paul, Silas, and Timothy, to the church of the Thessalonians, in God the Father and the Lord Jesus Christ, grace and peace to you. We always thank God for all of you and continually mention you in our prayers. We remember before our God and Father your work produced by faith, your labor prompted by love, and your endurance inspired by hope in our Lord Jesus Christ. For we know, brothers and sisters, loved by God, that he has chosen you, because our gospel came to you not simply with words, but also with power, with the Holy Spirit and deep conviction. You know how we lived among you for your sake. You became imitators of us and of the Lord, for you welcomed the message in the midst of severe suffering with the joy given by the Holy Spirit. And so you became a model and to all the believers in Macedonia and Achaia. The Lord's message rang out from you, not only in Macedonia and Achaia. Your faith in God has become known everywhere. Therefore, we do not need to say anything about it, for they themselves report what kind of reception you gave us. They tell how you turned to God from idols to serve the living and true God and to wait for his Son from heaven whom he raised from the dead, Jesus, who rescued, rescues us from the coming wrath. If you have your Bibles, you can open them up <clears throat> to 1 Thessalonians uh, chapter 1. Uh, today, we are beginning uh, a brand new series entitled Our Table, uh, a Thanksgiving Recipe, And we're going to be looking at 1 Thessalonians, um, beginning in chapter 1, verses 1 through 10. And uh, that'll be our focus for the next several weeks. Today, I'd just like to begin uh, by uh, giving an introduction, uh, kind of setting the course for where we're going to be heading and, and why this portion of Scripture um, is important, and it's important to us at Community Covenant Church. And I hope that as the weeks unfold, uh, we'll have a better sense of, of what I mean by that. Um, <clears throat> as we grow older in age, uh, we tend to be more uh, retrospective and introspective as well. And for me, uh, this last year, I had a, a major birthday, um, or this year had a major birthday, and I uh, thought about a lot of stuff, and uh, kind of went back and surveyed my life, starting in my early years, and then coming into my young adulthood, and um, yeah, I just said, man, how did I get here? And I look back, and I think about it, and there's a story There's definitely a story. Uh, And in that story, especially as as I stand from what I call a faith vista, a faith vista is a place 
where you survey the land. And, and in this case, you can survey the land of your life. Uh, you stand and, and, and from your vista, you look back and you see kind of your origins and, and where you've been. And then you kind of look on the ground you're standing and you recognize, well, here's where I am now. And you reflect on, on how you got there. And, and of course, as people of faith, we think about uh, the work of the Lord, His sovereign work, His providence in our life. And, and we stand and we look. And then from our faith vista, not only can we look back and, and we look around us, but then we look into the future. And we recognize that that God is faithful in all those places in our life. Uh, we see his faithfulness in our past. We, we see him present and working in our future. And we have history with the Lord. And because of that history, we can look forward with confidence and hope to know that God is faithful and we can count on him. And so this year I've spent some time on my faith vista. And I've been looking and surveying the land and... <clears throat> As I look back, I see the Lord definitely at work in, in my life. But, you know, I was thinking about something that, <clears throat> something that, ah, you know, I lament. And uh, you know my story. I didn't have a very strong family life growing up. And as a result of that, I grew up and got well into my adulthood and never really had a sense of, of my origin in a sense of, well, where did I come from? You know, what's the family history? What's, and I, you know, many times I'd, I'd be around people and they'd share their story, you know, about their, their dad or their mom and their grandparents and their great-grandparents and the people from the old country that came from Sweden or wherever they came, right? And you hear the story and it's, it's a sense of, of heritage. That's why Alex Haley's novel and then TV series Roots was so important. Uh, it really emphasized the importance of heritage and, and knowing where you came from, you know. Uh, but I've always felt like that was something, uh, an experience I never had. Um, as an adult, I did some research and I was able to fill in the blanks so I can tell you to some extent some of that. But I never had uh, a mom or a dad or someone that would just sit down with me and say, son, let me tell you who your family is. Let me tell you the origin of our family. Let me tell you who came before you and how that shaped who you are. Never had that experience. Just something that was missing from my life. Until this year. You've heard me talk about people who have influenced my life. And you've heard me talk about um, uh, a couple of men, one being a football coach, who was very instrumental in, in my faith development. Uh, he was uh, or is a Native American. And he mentored me uh, as a teenager and was instrumental in sharing Christ and making sure I got to Christian camps and I uh, was involved in Christian activity. Uh, he just poured into me uh, as, as a teenager. Well, um, about 40 years passed, and I looked him up. Hadn't talked to him in 40 years. And we've been in conversation over about the last year and a half. And this last 
Uh, spring, uh, I went to Oklahoma to see him, to meet him again after 40 years. Uh, he uh, is an elderly man in his early 80s, and he uh, lives on a parcel of land that's been in his family that goes all the way back uh, to the 1800s. And that's where he was. And uh, uh, Lori and I flew into Oklahoma City. We rented a car and we drove about two and a half hours uh, to where he lived. And it was a great reunion. It was wonderful. We talked about a lot of things. He talked about what he remembered of me as a teenager. And, and we just shared great memories. But then all of a sudden, as the, as the time together was nearing the end, the conversation shifted. Uh, it's hard to explain, but it just shifted. His demeanor changed. His countenance changed. And, and out of seemingly nowhere, he began to tell a story. It went all the way back um, to the early 1800s. He's part of the Creek Nation. And in the early 1800s, the Creeks were part of what were called the five civilized tribes in, in, in the southeast part of the United States. And um, in the early 1800s, the, the Creek Nation split. There were those who wanted to adopt the ways of, of the European uh, who had come and settled. But then there was a group, a minority, that said, no, we're not going to do that. We want to have our own ways. Our heritage, our history is important. We're not going to give that up. And uh, he began to tell the story all the way back to 1813, the Battle of Fort Mims, when the, when the side that decided they weren't going to give in, uh, they attacked Fort Mims. And, and yeah, maybe you've heard of it, maybe you haven't, but it's considered one of the greatest strategic military victories by Native Americans uh, in, in their various battles with uh, European settlers. Okay? And he told about that story. And he told about how his particular band or, or group or tribe within the nation, they were the warriors. They were the ones who didn't want to give up their heritage. They were the ones who wanted to stand their ground. And then he began to trace from that point on and he talked about uh, how his tribe got their name. And he talked about how uh, one of the elders was, was around a pond and it was quiet and the wind was blowing and the lily pads began to flap on the water and they made a flapping sound. And the name of their band, and I'm not going to even try to say it, uh, refers to the lily pads that, that slap on the water. Okay, he told me about that. And then he told me about his family. He told me about the Trail of Tears of how it was a forced march, and they went to the Oklahoma Territory. And uh, the surviving members, they had land that they, that they were settled on, and that was the land that, that we were standing on, that we were sitting on as I was visiting him. And he gave me the family history. He talked about the family, the family uh, cemetery that was across the street and, and all that stuff, right? And then he got up 
and he walked to me and he handed me this coin. Now in the military, you know what a challenge coin is or a coin. It bears the the logo of your military patch or the symbol and there's a lot of things that go along with this but one of the things is it represents the identity of the unit. Who you are, the values, your history, your legacy. That's an important thing. And uh, you're to live into that. Because when you join the unit, that now is who you are. You're a part of that. And he reached out and he handed me this coin. Now, he didn't have to say it. But we both knew it as he looked me in the eye. He was saying, the story I just told you, that now is your story. That belongs to you. Live into that story. Live into the very best of what you heard. I'm giving that to you. Now you carry this. And on one side, it has the name of the the band or the tribe. And they are known as warriors because of their refusal to give in because they want to keep their ways. And it says this with a warrior uh, on on the coin. It says, I will stand my ground. What a blessing, right? It's like, wow, it took 60 years, but I got it. Okay? And uh, I cherish that. That was a gift. Am I creek? No. But is now that a part of my story? Was that given to me? Is that now a part of my identity as my mentor in Christ told me his story? Yes, it's become mine. It's powerful. It's very powerful. As we come to 1 Thessalonians and we look at the first 10 verses of the chapter, we begin to get a picture of a story. A story of people, a diverse people, converts to Christ, some Jewish, some God-fearers, some Gentile, female, others, pagans worshiping pagan idols and false gods. But all of them with their unique stories, are given a new story. And they are invited to assume or to take ownership of a new identity. It's interesting. It's kind of like our church. All of us come from different places. We all have different stories. We can tell our story. 
some better than others, some with more detail, a better sense of history than others, but we all have a story. We can all stand on our faith vista and look at where we've been, where we are, and, and, and look to the future with a sense of where we're headed with Christ. But the amazing thing to me is this, is that all of us come from different places and different backgrounds, different heritage, different ethnicities, and yet we come and we sit at a table, metaphorically. It's a table that Christ has set for us. And he gives each and every one of us a seat at that table. And it matters that we're seated there. And we take our stories and in a way that only God can do. He, he draws us together. He seats us at the table. And he gives us all a new story. Not disregarding our old one but one that takes our story and then connects it and joins it to his. His grand narrative. Going all the way back to the beginning, to the origins, to the genesis. Right? Creation. And then fall. Redemption. And restoration. That, that meta-narrative that we see in Scripture, that becomes our story. As we sit at the table together with our uniqueness, with all that we bring to the table, yet we become one people and we have a common story, which is God's story. Isn't that amazing? What a, what a gift that that is. The Thessalonians, they were a church, or Paul is writing to the church at Thessalonica. We know them as the Thessalonians. Thessalonica was a huge city in Macedonia, Europe. Was a 200,000 people lived there. When Paul arrived on a second missionary journey, having gone from Asia Minor to uh, Philippi, and then on to Thessalonica. It was a port city. It had been a Roman colony, um, an important city, but it was a free city where people were allowed to have their own government and Jews were allowed to worship their God. That's why there was a synagogue there. And when Paul and Timothy and Silas arrived, uh, Paul went right to uh, the synagogue. And we get an idea of what happened there in Acts chapter 17, verses 1 through 4. Um, Dr. Spittler at at Fuller Seminary, when I had a New Testament survey from him, he said, you have to read the Acts of the Apostles as a foundation to reading the epistles and the letters that come in the New Testament because you get a really good sense of issues and people and things that inform the development of those faith communities. And as you read the letters, you can look back to the book of Acts and you can get a sense of maybe why those letters are being written to them, right? 
And that's the case here. So let's go back and let's look at Acts 17, 1 through 4. It says, when Paul and his companions had passed through Amphipolis and Apollonia, they came to Thessalonica, where there was a Jewish synagogue. Now, you're going to see whenever Paul travels, he, he looks for a synagogue. Um, there wasn't one in, in Philippi. That's why he went down to the river and began uh, to meet and to teach. There was a woman named Lydia, a merchant of purple cloth, and, and there he began his work in Philippi. There wasn't a substantial Jewish population there, but there was in Thessalonica and there was a synagogue. And so, as was his custom, Paul went into the synagogue and on three Sabbath days, he reasoned with them from the scriptures, explaining and providing, or proving, explaining and proving that the Messiah had to suffer and rise from the dead, okay? So, you're beginning to get a sense of heritage and identity. Our identity as followers of Christ is in, we find it in Scripture. It informs our sense of who we are, where we've come from, who our Lord is, why we worship Him. And Paul reasoned from the Scripture, proving to them Jesus' identity and what that meant to them. Uh, We already see a value in Christian community at the table that's emerging here as he begins this Work that's going to result in a new faith community, a church. And one of those values is going to be the authority of Scripture. Gee, that, that's, that's one of ours, isn't it? You can see that listed in our core values. The authority of Scripture. He reasoned from the Scripture. He reasoned from the Scripture. Then it goes on to say, This Jesus I am proclaiming to you is the Messiah. So we we see another identity piece that's going to emerge as this church begins to form. We read about its formation here in the book of Acts. And what is that? That's faithfulness to the gospel and to share the gospel. To proclaim the gospel, the good news of who Jesus is. And what that means to us. And so we see the authority of the Word of God. We see an evangelical or an intentionality about sharing with others that gospel. Let's look on. Some of the Jews were persuaded and joined Paul and Silas, as did a large number of God-fearing Greeks and quite a few women. Okay? Now... If you are looking in the book of Acts, chapter 17, you're going to see what follows. As some of the Jews and God-fearing, that means they were non-Jewish people 
who went to synagogue. They hadn't converted to Judaism, but they, they believed and feared the God of the, of the Jewish people. And then you had the women, and then you had others that would come. Verse 5, if you're reading on, says this, But other Jews were jealous, so they rounded up some bad characters from the marketplace and formed a mob and started a riot in the city. Boy, that sounds familiar. People are still doing that today. In all kinds of places, when they don't agree with something, they want to disrupt those who are teaching something they disagree with. It happens all the time, everywhere. It's not a new strategy. And they rushed to Jason's house in search of Paul and Silas in order to uh, bring them out of the crowd. But when they did not find them, they dragged Jason and some other believers before the city's officials shouting. Now listen to this. These men who have caused trouble all over the world have come here. (laughs) And Jason welcomed them into his house. They are all defying Caesar's decrees saying that there is another king, one called Jesus. Okay? Hey, look at this. Isn't this exciting? It's early. It's only his second missionary journey. I mean, we're not, we're not talking many decades after Christ's resurrection. And the word of God is spreading and Paul is spreading it. And what is our reputation already? that they're causing trouble all over the world with their message. And we sit in church on Sunday and we leave and want to have a private faith and not ruffle anybody's feathers. Folks, that's not our identity. That's not who we're to be. My coach gave me a coin that said, Stand Your Ground. Christians. Our lives of faith ought to be such that whether by word or by deed, it's like petting the cat backwards. It ruffles people's feathers. We need to be bold. We need to have in our character as a part of our identity... This is all central to the verses we're going to look at in 1 Thessalonians as Paul writes to them later, reminding them of these things. That we stand on the authority of Scripture. That we're committed to sharing the good news of the Gospel. I'm going to tell you something. It's wrong to tell people that they're okay when they're not. We're doing them a great disservice. Do you understand? There's good news to be told. Now, what they do with it is up to them. It's between them and God. But we have responsibility. We are part of a family. We have a heritage. We sit at a table. We're a part of God's grand narrative and story. And that story's been entrusted to us. And we look at the Word of God. as, And this is our coin, if you will. And in it, we understand who we are, where we came from, and what we're to be. And the Lord says, live into your identity. Be who I've called you to be in Christ. 
You've heard it said that Christianity is, is not a religion, it's a relationship. How many of you heard that? That's not true. It's not true. The word religion comes from the Latin, right? Religio. And you know what it means? It means that we are under the authority of the one we worship and that we have an obligation to give something to Him in that relationship, what He asks of us. That's what it really means. So yes, religion involves relationship, but not a relationship in which we can declare somehow our radical privatization of our faith and our independence from one another and from our obligation to live into our identity as men and women who are Christ followers. Does that make sense? We have a place at the table. We're called to the table. Every one of us has a seat and it's important that we're there. And together we sit at the table and we invite others and we have a recipe. That is, what is it that we serve them? What is it that we place on the table for them that we're inviting them to join us in? It's that Thanksgiving imagery of the family and creating a place at the table for others. That's good news, isn't it? We have a relationship, but God expects something of us. What kind of relationship would it be if it's, we expect this from you, God? Gimme, give gimme, give gimme, give do, 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 bless, 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 be there when I need you. But by the way, Christianity is not a religion, it's a relationship. And I can radically privatize and live it the way I want to. Well, if you're doing that, you're not living it the way God intended you to. Ouch. But I got to say it. Because telling you it's okay to do that when it's not, I'm not doing you any favors. Okay. So, we get to the first two verses. I'm going to read it. I'm going to make a comment. And then we're going to stop there. And I hope I've whet your appetite for where we're going. Because you're going to have a greater sense of, of their identity as a church. Who sat at their table. What they were serving up. But it's also going to give us a picture and a challenge of who we are at our table and what we're serving up. As we live into the identity that God has given us together. 1 Thessalonians chapter 1, verses 1 through 2. Paul, Silas, and Timothy to the church of Thessalonica in God the Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. That's really important. I'll tell you why. Because he could have just said in God the Father. And if you were a Jewish convert, you would think, well, yes, God the Father. This is a Jewish movement. It's not for Gentiles. It's just for Jews. And maybe those who convert should become Jews. 
But it's more than the Jewish faith. It is origin in the Jewish faith and the practices of it come from that. But it's God the Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. The Messiah. The one that I told you about that I reasoned from the scriptures and proved had to die and be resurrected. Grace and peace to you. Grace and peace. You're at the table as a result of God's grace, not your own work, not your own merit. God has had favor upon you. He has drawn you to Himself and He has given you a seat at His table. It is His grace. It's by His grace we're saved through faith, not of ourselves, that no one can boast. It's not like, hey, you invited me to the table. I'm pretty cool. Aren't you lucky I'm here? Right? No, no, it's not about that. It's by God's grace that we're at the table. And because of that grace, we have peace with God and peace with one another. We'll talk a little bit more about what that means in the weeks ahead. But it's important to know that's the common ground that we have as we sit at the table and we begin to live into our identity. So, this morning, as we've looked at Acts and just the very two verses of 1 Thessalonians, um, I want to invite you to sit at your seat at the table. And then I want to challenge you as you're seated at the table to live into your identity, your new identity in Christ. Because it matters that you're there and it matters how you live. And it matters what we offer and what we serve to others who come to our table. And we're going to see that very clearly as we look in these first 10 verses of 1 Thessalonians. As the worship team comes forward, let's pray. Father, we thank you for your word and we thank you for our heritage. For the grand narrative of creation, of fall, of redemption and restoration of who we are in Christ, our place at the table, our identity, and Father, the importance of what it is we serve up, what we offer to each other and to others that you are calling to join us at that table. Father, we pray that our faith and our worship would not be privatized, but that we would live into the very best of Christian community the way you intended it to be. Because the truth is, Lord, we need you and we need each other. And that's why you've called us to this common place to your table. And Father, I pray in the weeks and the months and the years ahead that community covenant would serve up hope and healing, 
and wholeness, that we'd be bold to stand our ground in the truth of the gospel. And there'd be many, many, many who aren't at the table today that will be tomorrow and in the years ahead. Because we have been faithful and we have lived in the fullness of all that you're calling us to do and to be. And as you do that, Father, as you do that work in us through your Holy Spirit, we will give you all the praise and the honor and the glory. In the name of Jesus, we pray. Amen.